Hey everybody, Chris Harry with you on the Backstage Chargers podcast presented by Toyota. Coming up, former Chargers linebacker Sean Merriman joins me to recap week one against the Chiefs. But first, I sit down with general manager Tom Telesco before he heads back to his hometown of Buffalo, the same place his NFL career began as an intern back in 1991. All right, it's my great pleasure to be coming to you from the office of General Manager Tom Telesco here on the second episode of Backstage Chargers. And Tom, special week for you, headed back to Buffalo, headed home, probably the place where you fell in love with football and you started your NFL career as an intern, right? 1991. Yeah, I mean, it's a long time ago. And and really, when I I started interning there, it, it wasn't because I was thinking about working in the NFL. It wasn't even something on my radar at all. Um, I got lucky that um, I went to high school uh, with Bill Polian's sons, Brian and Chris, and um, had met them and ended up going to the same college as Chris, yeah. and then Brian came after me. So I had some connections there, um, and I got the opportunity to work in training camp for the Bills in, 19, I think, 1991, and the only reason why I was going to do it, and I wanted to do it, I was a huge Bills fan, obviously, but I just wanted to learn about the game to make myself a better player. I'd never had any thoughts of actually working in the NFL. So for me, it was just a chance to learn more about the game, learn more about being a wide receiver. Uh, I got so lucky that at that time, they had Andre Reid, who's a Hall of Famer. Um, they had James Lofton, who's a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Steve Tasker, who, who I think should be a Hall of Famer as a special teamer. Um, Don Beebe, was he on that Don team? Don Beebe was on that team. And then receiver coach was Charlie Joyner. So I had an enormous amount of people to learn from how to run routes, how to recognize coverage, uh, how to set up your routes, all the stuff that I thought I needed to succeed at the, at the Division three level. I could learn from these guys, and that's really why I, I did it for the first couple of summers. Um, didn't do it for the money, um, and I didn't do it for thinking about because we didn't get paid hardly at all. Yeah. Um, but I, I never had any thoughts of actually working in the NFL at that point. I just didn't even think it was possible. It's At that time, like you know, I knew who the players were. I knew who the, who the head coach was. You know, the GM scouts didn't really even think about that that sort of thing. So it wasn't until my last uh, my last summer of my senior year when I was working training camp, um, actually going into my senior year, and thinking you know maybe you know I could get a job in the NFL. I didn't know what, maybe coaching, uh, maybe start off at the low, you know, little part of the, of the totem pole, move your way up, maybe scouting. I didn't know a lot about scouting at that point, to be honest with you. Um, and then I got a chance uh, when Bill Pullian left the Bills, went to the Carolina Panthers. They're an expansion team. So I got a chance to um, go down there. Didn't really have a full-time job set up. It was come down, work training camp, see what happens. Yeah. And uh, things kind of took off from there. So let's back up just your love for football. How did that start in Buffalo? Because you played in high school, I think, St. Francis yep. in Buffalo? Yep. yep. Played wide receiver. First of all, give me the Tom Telesco GM scouting report on Tom Telesco, the wide receiver. In well, high I'll back up first. So my first love was basketball. Okay. Um, growing up, that was my first. I love football too, but I, you know, I was a basketball guy. Um, my dad loved basketball. Basketball. My dad played basketball in college, so that was something that I always loved. I played a ton of basketball growing up. Who was your team in Buffalo? Well, we didn't. Have, we had the Buffalo Braves when I was a little kid, and yeah. then they relocated to San Diego. Um, actually, um, but I was probably I was probably the mid '70s, so I was a young kid. Um, but my dad was a huge Buffalo Braves fan, so that was our team. We kind of turned into Celtics after that. After the Braves had left, this was a time where you know there wasn't the internet, so. Um, to follow the Braves at that point, if you lived in Buffalo, it would be very difficult because so, our box scores would be a day behind because of the West Coast, East Coast thing. But in any event, so I loved basketball. I loved football, too. Um, we actually, we were big Bills fans, obviously. 
Uh, we go to maybe one or two games a year w with my dad. Um, and then I got to high school and, and, you know, played, you know, football, basketball, and baseball like most kids do. Um, but my love for football really, when I got to high school, our football coaches at St. Francis, Jerry Smith and John Shibetta, they had such a passion for the game. And that just started to rub off on me for whatever it was. And it wasn't like uh, I started to dislike basketball, but I just started to gravitate more towards football. And um, it was really from those two coaches um, that I just really, that this is the game that I love to play. I was, I was hoping to maybe play in college. And that just kind of took off from there. And then as far as working in the NFL, that just kind of happened. Wide receiver. I, I want this guy to report on Tom Telesco, the wide receiver, going to John Carroll University. So technically sound. Uh, knew my assignment, knew my alignment, knew my techniques. Um, could get off the line of scrimmage. Uh, even at the Division three level, uh, very average speed. Um, but I could catch the ball. And that's and that's what hands. you got to do. you got to catch the football. So I don't think many people know this about John Carroll University. Don Shula went to John Carroll University. And I recently read an article. I think it was Jenny Ferentis wrote something up around the Super Bowl because Nick Casario and Josh McDaniels were part of the Super Bowl this past year. You played on some teams with a lot of executives that are in the league today. I think, was London Fletcher also on your team? No, so he came after me. A year after you, okay. Yeah, a year or two after me. So yeah. one of the NFL Ironmans was a year after you. So it was Nick Casario, Josh McDaniels. Yeah, Josh wasn't there yet. So uh, Nick Casario was a redshirt freshman my senior year. Um, Josh came after him, so I was gone. But uh, Dave Caldwell was on that team. Um, Chris Pulling was there before me. But my senior year, we had uh, Nick was a, a freshman quarterback who you could tell at that point he was a really good player. Yeah. Um, but Josh came after. So I talked to you about this right before we started taping. It's always been so intriguing to me because I mentioned, like, I went to journalism school because of guys like Rich Eisen and Adam Schefter went to Northwestern and Syracuse. You, know, you got Bob Costas, Mike Tirico. And it didn't start like that, but I imagine a lot of people in the scouting world today in NFL front offices, people that aspire to be in those NFL front offices, they, they look back and they're like, well, Tom Telesco went there and Josh McDaniels went there and Nick Casario went there. How has John Carroll evolved into this kind of NFL executive hotbed? It's hard to explain. Uh, there's a lot of us that are in the league. A lot of us came in through different ways. One person I forgot was Greg Roman was on, That's uh, right. was on the team my senior year. That's Greg right. was a, a defensive lineman. And myself and Greg, both our first jobs were with the Carolina Panthers, first full-time jobs with the Panthers, but we both came from different ways. Uh, Greg came in actually uh, in strength and conditioning. Um, he came in, worked that first, kind of moved his way into coaching after that. I came in through scouting from Bill Polian. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of people just came in through different ways. It's hard to put your finger on it because we always say at the Division three level, you have to love to play the game because you're not there for the scholarship. Um, you may have be some, some financial aid, but you're not there on a full scholarship. Um, so it's really the love of the game, but every Division three player has a love for the game. So sure. why is John Carolina different? I, I can say when I was there, I just thought the coaching was excellent. I just felt like when I left John Carroll and went to the Panthers at whatever age I was, 22 years old, I just felt like just for knowing football, nobody knew more than I did as far as a 22-year-old coming out of college. I just felt like I was really prepared football-wise with everything we did. We tried to treat it like a Division One school without the, without the Division One resources or Division One players. Yeah. Um, but I just felt like I knew a lot about the game compared to other 22-year-olds coming out of college. And I think a lot, of, I think a lot would say the same thing. We had some great coaches that were there. Um, but I think as years went on, since more of us have gotten in the league, either as scouts or as coaches, I think now some kids, if they're looking to get in the NFL, they know they're not going to come in as a player. 
you know, maybe they'll look at that school a little bit more and, and see the contacts. But I can tell you, anybody that's hired from John Carroll at this league, and if they have a contact with us, uh, it's not a favor. I mean, this this league is hard. You have to contribute. If you don't contribute, you won't last real long. No doubt. Um, so there's nobody in this league that are here for a favor. So 91, you start as an intern with the Bills, a team you grew up going to games. What was that experience like? What did you do? Like, what were the jobs that you did during those summer internships with the Bills? Uh, mostly at training camp. So um, all training camp jobs, uh, driving players around in golf carts. Now, mind you, you know, I'm 20, I'm, in, you know, I'm 18, 19, 20 years old when I'm doing this. So I'm not like a younger kid, but um, uh, driving players to get an MRI or x-ray um, in, a, in a team van. Um, working practice, setting up uh, Charlie Joyner's drills for that day, um, typing out his script for that day, for the practice script for that day, um, working in the equipment room with the equipment guys. Um, so you touch on all functions of the organization. Yeah, it was just, you did whatever side. you could. And, and, and uh, sure it could be like, like packing bags for a road trip, um, un- unloading the truck after we get back from a late road trip. Um, that was all just jobs, just really odd jobs during training camp. Um, that, that we've had, we have here today. You know, we use interns in all different departments in our training camp, and I was one of those kids in, in college. You know, I grew up uh, a Redskins fan, and I know Charlie Casterly had a very similar story about, you know, you, you just hang around. You hang around, you hang around until you get a job, and then, you know, sure enough, you rise up the ranks. I know he was doing that under Bobby Beathard. Yeah, well, when I was with the Panthers, so I went down there to work the, the first training camp, 1995, and, you know, there were no assurances I was staying for the rest of the year or to go on full time was come down work camp and we'll see what happens. So training camp ends, we break camp at, at Wofford, at Wofford college. And we go back to where our offices were. And since nobody told me to go home, I just kept coming in every day, figuring at some point they're probably going to say, Hey, look, Hey, you did a great job, but you know, we're, we're good. We don't need you anymore. So I figure I'm just going to keep coming in until someone tells me something different. Keep showing up. And, and part of it was since we're an expansion team, a lot of stuff would come up to the course of the day that maybe we didn't even know who's supposed to do what. Um, so I just made sure that I did as much as I could in many, as many departments as I could to show that, hey, look, if this kid's not here, we have no one to do this work. And that's kind of how I hung on. Make yourself so indispensable. That's, that's what you try and do. You try and, you know, low maintenance. Um, I was very lucky that we were an expansion team. We had two different offices. We had a business office in Charlotte. We had our football office in Rock Hill, South Carolina. There were a lot of moving parts for that first year. Um, so I got a chance to do it. And plus, a lot of things weren't automated then like they are now. Even little things like we get the waiver wire every day right now. It automatically sucks into our database. Everything's there. Well, at that time, we had to actually type in every transaction all the way through. That was one of my jobs was typing in transactions every wow. day and typing in depth charts every day and jersey numbers and positions and all that stuff we don't have to do anymore, but somebody had to do it. I was lucky enough that I was at that right age that um, everything wasn't automated. I did all that work, and you try and make yourself indispensable, and, and you hang on. Tom, at what point when you started with the Panthers did you realize that scouting and eventually getting to that point of getting into a position to become a GM, when did that get into your mind? I never thought about being a GM. Honestly, it's maybe, I don't know, three years, four years before I got the Charger job. Never really? thought of it. Um, when I first got to the Panthers, I was worried about just holding on to the job I had. So just doing the job the best that I could, um, contribute to the best that I could. I never ever worried about uh, getting promoted. Hey, what can I do next? I really, I'd never, just never entered my mind. Um, it was almost like survival at that point. I was just trying to learn as much as I could, help as much as I could. Uh, Chris Poyne was the, was the pro director at that point. Um, one of the sharpest, if not the sharpest football mind I've been around as far as scouting and to, to what scheme you're on. I learned so much from him about roster building and 
all the pro scouting. And then Dominelli was our college director. And um, I didn't have an office. I had a, a desk in the draft room, and that's where Dom's office was. So I sat with him every day, myself and Todd Vazuri, another scouting assistant. We sat in his office every day for a year just listening to him watch tape, write reports, talk about players, and I just learned just being a sponge um, and to try and learn as much as you can. But I never really was concerned about what am I going to do next. And, and that's the advice I give a lot of people when they come into this business is you don't really come in thinking, hey, I want to be a GM in 10 or 15 years. So you just you come in, you do your job, and you know things will happen. Work ethic will show. And that's the thing, too. I mean, you knew you wanted to work in football. You just didn't know in what facet. And I was going to ask you, that was my next question, is the advice that you give to people that just start out in this business? Because I started 18 years ago, intern at the Redskins, and I would do anything. I said, let me just stay on. I'm not above any job. And then you see what happens. You see where that path takes you. It seems like a lot of people today, you know, you have like a goal of being, I want to be this, I want to be that. And you just, you don't enjoy the process. You don't enjoy the journey of just doing what you know you love to do. Yeah, it's funny. We all say that now, but I was thinking when I was a young scout, that probably the older guys are probably looking at the young guys and probably complaining about, you know, this guy, that guy, he wants to do this. Probably. They probably were. But no, for, for right now, I always tell people, like the hardest part to get in our league is just getting that initial internship. There's, we have so many resumes from people, and there's not, there aren't that many actual football jobs in the NFL, not as many as people think. But getting that initial internship is the hardest part and once you get that it's just really it's your work ethic and how far you can take it from there and uh this is a job and an industry that you have to perform you have to contribute or else they're going to find somebody else to do it um and that's just the way the nfl is it's very competitive Uh, but a lot of it's kind of you know you listen you learn um you put the hours in and you do all the grunt work and you don't complain and you know like i said usually good things will happen they may not happen as fast as you want them to happen um, but they will happen if you put those in and, and those are all things I learned as a kid growing up and you know, have the right parents and teachers and mentors and um, can kind of get you to, the, to that point. Yeah, and you mentioned mentors and I think it's so important to have mentors. You had a Hall of Fame one in, in Bill Polian. I'm sure you learned a myriad of things from him. What were the biggest things that probably sit with you today uh, in this chair here at the Chargers? Probably it's, it's just the people skills of the job and the time management part of the job, but probably mostly the people skills of um, talking with coaches, talking with players, talking with your scouts, um, and get, just getting a feel and a pulse for what's going on all the time, and then trying to fit all the pieces together. Um, Bill delegated a ton of work to a lot of people when I was with the Colts, um, and to some of us at an age that we probably hadn't earned it yet, but he trusted people. Um, but he just did a great job teaching us. I mean, he would, we would sit in his office when he's making a trade. We'd sit in his office when he's talking on the phone with agents, maybe yelling with agents, maybe not so much talking on the phone, but yelling. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's just, you know, I got so lucky to see on a day-to-day basis of, of how you run a football team when I worked for the Colts uh, between him and his son Chris about everything that goes on in the course of a day of a GM that you just don't anticipate, um, which if you're on the road during, doing college scouting, you don't get a chance to see that day-to-day. I was on the road. I did college scouting for, for a couple of years, maybe three or four years, and then I transitioned into the office and was a pro scout. But I got a chance to see what happens um, you know, on a Monday after a loss, on a Monday after a win, um, when a star player gets hurt and how you handle it, and, and then you know, how your discussions go with the team doctors and the team trainers and, and how you make decisions on, on roster moves and how it affects everything else on your roster and then how your, your interaction with the head coach, which you spend you – know, I spend more time with Anthony than I do with my wife during the season – you know, you're, you're constantly communicating, looking forward, uh, trying to anticipate what will happen. And 
that's all things that I just kind of learned just by watching when I was in Indianapolis between both Bill and his son, Chris. And you need those years to experience all of those things that you just mentioned, you know, whether injuries, wins, losses, um, things that come out throughout the course of a season that may come up some seasons, don't come up in other seasons. It's all those things that culminate in being able to handle this job. Yes, it is. And it's amazing how like years could go, could go by without like maybe one event happening they haven't seen in a while. Yeah. And at least now, you know, I've been in the league for over 20 years you know, usually things that come up, you can at least refer back to, hey, look, this is what happened last time. This is how we handled it. This is how it worked or didn't work. And you know, we can you kind of use that help help us make decisions moving forward. Tom, I, I always love to ask people this. Books, like football books, what are your favorite football books? What, what are books that you have leaned on or have read over the years that, that kind of shape your philosophies? And obviously, I know it's, it's more the hands-on experience, but there's just so much good stuff out there from so many different football minds. Yeah, you know, I, and I'm a, I love history, and I love the history of sports. I love the history of football, So, and I love reading biographies. Yeah. You know, not so much about how it can help me with my job, but just biographies on, on Lombardi and, and, and just a couple of different books. I can't, at the top of my head, I can't remember, but uh, the, the Joe Namath book. There's just, I just love reading those books. But, um, I mean, two big ones. I thought one of the most important ones I read, which is a great book, was the, the Bill Walsh book about just how, you know, how to put together a football team. It's amazing. Finding the winning edge. Yes, yeah. great book. It's probably on my shelf over here, right next to Bill Pulling's book right there, because Bill's book was pretty good too. Yeah. Um, but the, the Bill Walsh book was almost like a textbook uh, on how they put their teams together from A to Z. Everything from from roster building to the video department to the training room like to, handling to everything. The media. Yes, handling the media, everything, and it was it's, it was um, just well written and, and almost like a reference textbook. Um, but uh, really, my my textbook has really been you know working for the Colts for that many years with some really good people. That's really what really shaped uh, a lot of what I know now and how we operate right now. It's cool because 2018, you go full circle here. You come in, you go into Buffalo this weekend. We got the Browns in a few weeks, so you got John Carroll right up the road there. Uh, what's this week going to mean to you? Are you going to see family? What, what's the what's on the agenda for the very short time that we're here? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll get a chance to see my family for a little bit, um, but uh, it, it, you know, hate to say it, but it is a business trip. We go in, we're not there for very long. We're in there to play a game, but uh, I'll get a chance to see some family. Probably not so many friends. I just don't don't have time for that, but. Um, I love going back there. I think that the stadium is, you know, it's a stadium that I used to go to as a kid to watch games. Um, it used to be 80,000 seats. I don't know what it is now. I think they've reconfigured it a little bit. But, you know, it's a rowdy crowd. It's, it's like a college atmosphere there. It's, it's, it's uh, like, like I remember walking through the tunnel as you walk into the stadium and uh, you walk out to see the seats. And it's just amazing, um, you know, see the green grass when now it's field turf. But um uh, I played great I, fans up there. Great fans, you know. I, I got a chance to, in high school to play there at least twice. I think. I think in my junior senior year, we both we played. Uh, then it was Rich Stadium, so I've played there. I've been there as as a part of a front office person. Um, I've been on the sidelines for games in the early '90s. I was on the sidelines for some of the playoff games. I was on the sidelines for the the comeback game, the Frank Wright the, game. Yeah, the Frank Wright game. I was on the sidelines for that. I was supposed to have a job. I really didn't have a job because the one good thing about entering with the Bills is when I was home from break for winter break from college. Um, I would quote unquote work the game, which really didn't involve a whole lot. Maybe <laughs> pick, being there, yeah, just picking up some coats on the sidelines because it was cold, and putting the coats up on the uh, on the benches keep the players warm. Uh, but that game, I think the the what the, year was that game? Time was that ninety two or um, 90, it was 90, early 90s, 92, 93. Right? Yeah, yeah. There, there was a there was a a Raiders game, and we won like fifty one to three. Um, a Chiefs playoff game because it was always the playoffs usually, um, and those are just great memories, great experiences. Um, I remember catching punts in pregame from the punters 
um, in one of the playoff games. It was so cold, I couldn't feel my fingers. Oh my I didn't want to embarrass myself. I'm trying to catch these punts from, I think it was from Chris Moore, um, as they're working, warming up the, the kickers and punters and just trying to corral the ball and thinking, God, how do they play in this weather? I don't know how you do it. Wait, hey, when you saw the schedule in April, were you happy week two in Buffalo? As opposed I'll tell you to what, Buffalo is beautiful. It's beautiful in September. So I'm glad <laughs> we're playing in September. But uh, no, great memories to go back there and play. And, and um, I hope it's the same result it was last time when we, we went back. Tom Telesco on Backstage Chargers. Can't thank you for your time. It's been fun going down memory lane a little bit. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on. A quick break, and then Chargers great Sean Merriman joins me. You're listening to the Backstage Chargers podcast presented by Toyota. The Chargers' new home, L.A. Stadium at Hollywood Park, is taking shape, and fans, this is your chance to get in on the action that starts in 2020. The stadium experience, indoor-outdoor design, and world-class amenities are all groundbreaking, along with the see-through roof and 70,000-square-foot dual-sided video board. The new L.A. Stadium speaks to what it means to be an Angelino and your Los Angeles Chargers want you to be part of it all. Visit FightForLA.com. That's FightForLA.com today for more information. All right, always good to have my guy Sean Merriman with us on Backstage Chargers. And Sean, we're on to the next one in Buffalo. How are you, man? I'm doing well, man. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. We're uh, ready for week two. You know, I saw you on the field right before the game against the Chiefs. Tough to go down early to a good team like Kansas City. How would you sum up what you saw last Sunday against the Chiefs? Well, you know, for one, you just had too many mistakes. Uh, one, probably the most noticeable one, is, is was on special teams uh, that game. That just that killed, um, especially when you have <clears throat> a, a guy like uh, Tyree Hill, uh, Paxton Holmes, who can go and throw the rock, um, <clears throat> and. You also have a, a kind of a, a, a streak that you need to break too. So it was a critical game. So yeah. uh, whenever you turn the ball over and you give up special teams, you're you're almost writing your own destiny um, before the game. You know, before the game gets going. Shaw, who was the who was the Tyreek Hill equivalent when you were playing for the Chargers? Uh, I'm trying to rack my brain. I mean, I, I, Devin Hester comes to mind, but I don't know if I've seen a guy as dangerous as, as Tyreek Hill. No, he's he's a whole different a whole different character because. Um, Devin Hester was a great special teams player. He can take the ball anywhere. But uh, as far as on the offensive side of the ball and the offensive threat, being able to take a quick screen, a wide receiver screen or slant, or just a, a short comeback route and get loose to take the 15 or 20 more yards, uh, once you get in space, he's the most dangerous guy I've seen in a long time. Um, you know, they had a guy by the name of Dante Hall there some years ago. I remember uh, him. Dante was a, a jitterbug, but uh, uh, Tariq Hill is a bigger – person he's a bigger guy than uh, even faster so um there's not many guys like like him around and going into the game i'm sure that the Chargers knew uh what he was capable of no doubt and i think going into it you know we we stress just our keys of the game talk about the running game kareem hunt after what he did last year and then you talk about travis kelsey uh an all pro pro bowl tight end uh, those guys just have a lot of weapons, and, and it's those it's those quick flash plays that that occur right off the top. You know, when when you have a 91 yard punt return, a, a 58 yard catch and, and touchdown by Tyree Kill. I think he had three touches, 179 all purpose yards in the first quarter. You put yourself in a hole, and, and really, we saw the offensive output by the Chargers, 541 total yards. Even that's not enough. No, it's not enough, and you can't do that. And you know, actually, uh, as that was going on, I was just crossing the field and uh, crossing the tunnel, 
and Tyreek Hill had just took the pump return to the house, and mm. as he was coming back, he kind of uh, smiled and pointed at me on the way by. Did and he really? It, uh, it really, it really got me upset. But uh, look, he he's a he's a great player. He's not good. He's a great player. Um, you know, he's one of these guys that can change the momentum of the game. And then you go in and you you have three guys you know you need to stop. And you just stop the running back and you stop Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. So uh, if you you know, shut one or two of those guys down, you can up your chance of winning. The problem is that uh, you don't pay attention enough to one of these guys, then the other two guys can burn you, and that's really what takes place and happened in this game. I thought you'd like this stash on because Phillip had 424 passing yards in week one. The only other player who had more was another one of your former teammates, Drew Brees. So let's go back to 2005. You have these two guys in the same quarterback's room. 13 years later, they both are one and two in, in passing yards in week one in 2018. That's got to be something. It is something. And uh, I, I really enjoy playing with both. Um, you know, when I first came to the NFL and I walked in the locker room and, and uh, you know, Phillip wasn't playing yet, but Drew Brees is there. You're looking at it like, oh, man, that's Drew Brees. Um, and I've never been around a quarterback that was more focused. You know, Drew was always focused, whether it was in the weight room, um, whether it was walking down the hallway. He was just always kind of straight in the zone, a straight shooter, was ready to go. Um, and Phillip hadn't touched the field just yet, so we, we, we didn't know what Phillip could do. And obviously when Phillip graced the field, he did his thing. So um, I really got the pleasure of, of, of being able to play with two great quarterbacks. Sean, what's it like in a locker room? After a loss, just take us through. You lose on Sunday. You got Monday, Tuesday off. Then you got a game plan on Wednesday. Uh, what's what's the vibe like? I feel like there's got to be a, a sense of urgency just to get back on the field, try to get that W. Yeah, you know it's quiet. You get in the locker room and, and you see guys that are normally happy and and you know having fun and all smiles. And you get back there and it, it's like a funeral, right? It's, it's very quiet. Uh, but the thing is, it's week one. Uh, you go back and you watch the film, and after they watch the film. Nobody should be talking about the Kansas City Chiefs until they play them the next time. And that's the mindset that these guys need to have. Uh, feel bad for a day. Go home, you know, you uh, ice your wounds and heal up. You got any injuries from the game and get healthy again. Watch the film and then move on to the Bills. That's the only thing that you can do, especially when you have the kind of team that they have that have an opportunity to play in the playoffs. They have the opportunity to go deep in the postseason. Yeah, you want to, you know, concentrate game by game, but. Let's face it, all the potential of this team and, and what they can do uh, is, is, is play, you know, play later on during the season. So you have to put this game behind you in order to get there. And you had that unique vantage point. I mean, there's two guys in this locker room now that you played with, and Antonio Gates and, and Phillip Rivers. How do leaders like that help in, in getting over a loss and just kind of setting the tone for the following week to get that win? Well, it, it's crucial that these guys are there because they can actually come out and say, hey, this is what happened to us, right? I mean, that, that's what other, the team wants, wants to hear. That's what your coaching staff and just the morale of your whole you know, uh, environment in the locker room, that's what you want to hear. Hey, we, we went one of three back in uh, what, 2007 or 2008, whatever it is. We, we started out slow. We did this. This is how we fixed our problem. Um, when you have that kind of in, experience on a team, it is invaluable. Uh, to what they can bring to not only just the players, but also the front office to keep everybody calm. Because it's a, you know it's a little bit of a panic when you, you start off slow the way they did, and they you know have uh, you know division games and they didn't come out with a win. So it's it, it's it's very crucial that everyone remains calm, look at the film, correct the mistakes, and get on to the next game. 
Shaw, I tell you, I look at week one last year against the Broncos versus week one this year, and one of the things that really stood out to me was just that running game and really just the running backs in general, that combination of Melvin Gordon and Austin Eckler, 292 total yards. I think on the ground, it was 5.6 yards per carry. Uh, the O-line, I thought, starting with Mike Pouncey, those guys were they were moving some guys up front. Uh, what did you see from that running game? It looked like it's going to be a nice added dimension that's really going to set things up nicely for Phillip going downfield as well. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, just look at how this team is built. Um, Eckler, man, I mean, we all know what, what Melvin Gordon do. I think, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a great running back. He's solid. We know he's going to get, you know, have a big year. But having a combination of Eckler back there, being able to catch the ball at the backfield as well, switching up, um, is going to do this team um, way more good than they did last year. Uh, Melvin Gordon doesn't have to go in and say, hey, if I leave the game, if I come out for a breath or – uh, you know, if something happens, I need to miss a couple stats, get to the sideline, we'll still be fine. There, there's no drop-off. Um, this whole line this year, with the experience of Pouncey and, and, and you know, Lance, some of these guys being back, it, they're different. The attitude, you know, you're seeing that they're playing on the opposite team's line of scrimmage. They're able to push them back two or three yards. So every time Melvin Gordon or Eckley cuts the ball out the backfield, well, it's a two-yard game because these guys are getting moving up front. Yeah, um, I just feel the attitude, the attitude, uh, the way they're approached, the camaraderie is totally different this year up front. It starts with that center too, man. I mean, you had to go up against guys like Nick Hardwick in practice. I mean, the leadership that Mike Pouncey provides. I mean, just talking to him after the game in the locker room, um, he was nothing but positive. He liked to fight in the team. And, you know, this is a guy who, who played Buffalo twice a year in Miami. And it's just players like that you add to a locker room that I think is just going to bring that, that added chemistry that you need to, to win games and eventually get into the playoffs. You know, Mike, what Mike Pouncey does um, for this front and also – Having to come back and bounce back from a loss against Kansas City, uh, City Chiefs like they did, and going to play the Bills, he lets everybody know it's going to be okay. <laughs> you know, don't yep. don't there's no need to panic. Uh, we've been here before. You know, I see him out there, and he's he's pointing out the middle linebacker. He's pointing out guys and moving. He's basically telling the rest of the offense line and his open communication. I'm walking on the field, and you can hear him talking to your left and right guard there. So he just added extra uh, dimension to this offense line. That they didn't have since you know what you know my former teammate Nick Harwood. Defensively, obviously, you miss Joey Bosa. You only had one sack. Derwin James had that one sack. I thought he had an impressive debut. A couple of passes defensed. Uh, what'd you think of Derwin? Derwin, man, he's uh, you know, and I, and I I wanted to say it because I don't think I got the credit for saying Joey Bosa was going to win Defensive Player uh, Defensive Rookie of the Year. Uh, but in, you, when you start talking about Derwin James, he's that caliber guy. I wasn't even surprised at the sack he got in the game because we've seen a lot of that in college. I was more impressed that uh, the game wasn't too fast for him. Uh, it looked like everything slowed down. He wasn't out there, you know, kind of with his head spinning and trying to figure out what's going on. He knew exactly where to be. He anticipated certain plays. I saw him uh, even at certain points calling out different offensive sets that he's seen and, and moving and things like that. Um, that normally doesn't come from a rookie. When that happens, you get a pretty special guy. Sean, you played two seasons in Buffalo. How difficult is it to play up there? I know those fans are going to be, hey, despite losing the way they did to Baltimore, they'll be out there in droves. They'll be excited for the uh, for the home opener there in Buffalo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, 
I, I talk about Buffalo a lot, and I didn't get a chance to play there long. And after uh, you know leaving the charge, a great organization, and going to uh, another team and being accepted the way I did there, um, you know, we've seen what what happened with Andy Jones, right? They come out and they give him a standing ovation for um, for for them, you know, help, him helping them get to the playoffs. <laughs> That's right. Right? That's right. I mean, what what honestly, what organization? Uh, organizations there's not a lot to do that you know that that's a pretty tough thing but it's, it's kind of the the but it's, it's there it's the buffalo thing it's how they are out there the fans are great the people are great um and it's going to be a game they're going to they're going to be looking to bounce back um you know from the loss they just took as well you're going to be in the tailgate area hanging out too i don't know if if you need security sean just hit me up i'm available man <laughs> well, I, I plan on I possibly could be doing some uh, some some slamming, some WWE style stuff out there around with the fans and just enjoying it out there a little bit. But yeah, it, it's going to be great. And, and Chris, man, I, I might need your muscles out there. I'm a little a little light. I've been doing this training for for my fight coming up November 9th, so uh, I'm a little light right now. I might need some help. November. Wait, tell me about that. November 9th. Tell me about the fight. Yeah, the World Bare Knuckle Fighting Federation, man. Um, November 9th, I'm fighting Mike Borg on pay per view. Um, I think we're announcing who the main event or whatnot is going to be next Friday. We had a, a huge press conference, and uh, you know, look, I've been I've been in training camp for the last few weeks, and uh, I'm ready to go, man. I want to knock this dude out. Shaw, what's more difficult, an NFL training camp or what you're doing right now to get ready for this fight on November 9th? Well, you know, Chris, the, the difference is in football when you make a mistake, you can blame it on ten other guys. <laughs> That's right. You're the only one. You're the only one there, man. That's it. That's it. You know, hey, this guy wasn't in this guy. We can go up and you got the DPs pointing at each other uh, or whatnot. But uh, in this fight, in this fight game, it's which I love. And I've always been a not only a fight fan, but I've also been training MMA and boxing for the past, you know, 12 to 13 years. I was actually doing it during my offseason to help uh, some of my pass rushing, the stamina and agility, hand-eye coordination in football, which it helped out tremendously. And I ended up falling in love with the sport. So, uh, it's, it's neck and neck. I would say football is a little tougher, uh, only because of, of you don't have to see 350 pound guys in fighting. So uh, that's the difference there. Listen, I come from a family of wrestlers. My my uncle's a state champion wrestler. My my younger brother was a, a Virginia state champion wrestler. It's just that that mental toughness that you need to go one on one. Like you said, you don't have ten other guys that you can rely on or. You know, point the blame at it's all on you, and, and that's what I love about those sports, man. Because it's just you versus the other dude. That's it. it but this, this, Chris, this is the uh, difference, or I would call it the same thing rather. Football is a bunch of one-on-one matchups across the field. I mean, it, it is a team sport, offense, defense. You got eleven guys, and everyone needs to be on the same page. But in order to be successful, you have to beat the guy in front of you. Yeah. And that's what I took really from the game of football, what football allowed and, and taught me to be able to move to another sport like this. It's like that do-your-job mantra, right? The Bill Belichick do-your-job. If, if every single guy does their job, you're going to get it done collectively. Exactly, exactly. You got to win your battle first and then uh, and let everything else take care of itself. All right, Sean, I'm going to end on this. I, I think I'm going to ask everybody this this week that I have on the podcast. I need a restaurant recommendation, man. What, what's the spot in Buffalo? Because, you know, SoCal, we don't get out there too often. They got some of the best, Chris. They got some of the best wings in Buffalo. Um, you know, I've, I've probably hit every single last one of them. Uh, <laughs> nice. uh, Duff's, Duff's is always good. The Anchor Bar uh, is always a great place. Uh, they have a thousand different sauces. You can never, be, I mean, you can't even, if you went every day for the whole year, 
you wouldn't even get a chance to taste all the sauces they have in some of those places. Um, Chippewa is always a good good place to be downtown. Uh, and uh, I, I, look, I, I miss Buffalo. Buffalo is a great place, and um, I'm looking forward to the game this weekend. It's going to be fun, man. So if, if you are a Chargers fan, you headed to Buffalo. Those are some spots recommended by Sean Merriman. Sean, awesome. Can't thank you enough for your time, and I look forward to seeing you out there, my man. You got it, man. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this second episode of the Backstage Chargers podcast presented by Toyota. Now, this is a brand new podcast, so we need your help. Move this up the charts on Apple Podcasts. Please give us a rating and review and help spread the word. This podcast posts every Tuesday, and then be on the lookout for Chargers Weekly this Thursday. Former Jets and Bills head coach Rex Ryan is our headline guest. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you back here next Tuesday.